Welcome, and thank you for joining the Unbiased Label Podcast, where we believe labels belong on clothes, not people. On this podcast, we have real talk focused on all things fashion and culture with a critical global perspective at the intersection of industry and academia. I'm your host, Zara Karutz, and I launched Unbiased Label after earning my master's in fashion critical studies from Central St. Martins in London. I'm now a PhD fashion studies researcher at Massey University, and I'm obsessed with pushing boundaries by holding deep conversations with meaning. Some people associate fashion with words like vapid or shallow, But really, fashion is a visual and material reflection of society, and it's a complicated system of communication. It shapes belonging, identity, and emotions. On this podcast, we believe fashion holds a lot of power that can create change towards a more equitable world, all while still having fun and being creative. This episode of Unbiased Label is a conversation with Anastasia Kaklina, who is a cultural analyst, strategist, and PhD researcher at Duke University. Her work is focused on African-American studies and feminist theory. As a cultural intermediary, Anastasia's work focuses on pop culture, race, identity, and cultural politics. Her knowledge helps shape stories that are rooted in cultural intelligence while thinking deeply about lived experience and social behavior. Please join us as we talk about culture as an interdisciplinary form of critical thinking and examine the importance of understanding the connected world for which we live in. On this episode, we focus on knowledge leading to equality rather than systemic bias. Hi, Anastasia. How are you? Hi, Zara. I'm good. Tell us a little bit about your work and what you do. Absolutely. Um, my broader specialization is in um, cultural studies, uh, which means that I spend a lot of time thinking about culture, ideology, identity, um, and social history. And my more specific specialization is in Black studies and feminist theory, which um brings me to the work or the kind of thinking um, that takes seriously the role of race um, in structuring culture, structuring society, um, and making the history through which we're living. I would say it's more important now than ever before, wouldn't you say? I think you're totally right to say that in this moment, um, thankfully now, um, we, more of us rather, are thinking about things like representation, diversity, inclusion, all of which um, always already have to do with culture. Yeah, and also the intersection of academia and industry and sharing the knowledge from both spectrums and having that dance that really works well together to grow and move everything forward. I am very passionate thinking about the untapped opportunity that exists um, in interdisciplinary humanities 
for folks who are not just inside of the academy thinking about these things, producing knowledge, um, researching um, various aspects of culture, but for uh, professionals in the industry, right? In, whether it's in business um, or advertising or communications, it seems to me that some of the tools that we use in academic research is um, permeating some aspects of uh, the private industry, uh, but there's just such a wealth um, of thought in the humanities that I think is yet to be discovered, uncovered, and applied in other um, parts of the industry. I agree. There's a huge hole that needs to be filled, which is why we're having this conversation, which is why we do our work. So I, I'm totally in agreement with you. The idea of culture holds so much power in so many different ways. Um, I think of culture as a rather um, fluid, expansive force that is always in flux. It's not something that we can pin down, that we can narrowly define. And that is precisely the work of cultural studies as a discipline, but also as a tradition of critical thinking. I think what cultural studies does, specifically in the context, for example, of Western culture, with it, which is my area of specialization, it is really about thinking of, of culture as not something there, you know, not something that how these people live, but how we all live, how we all interact, how we all construct uh, not only our interactions, but our notions of self, our notion of each other. Um, there are constantly forces of the past, certain residual practices that are always in tension with things we are creating in the present, but also with emergent forces that are coming at us from the future. Like we can think about it in terms of gender relations. There are certain residual gender norms that are very ingrained um, and there are certain norms that are very dominant in our culture, right? The way that we um, interact across gender lines. Yet at the same time, you know, if, you, if we go and look at fashion, we look at music industry, we'll look um, at art, there are certain emergent strands of culture that are pushing against those notions that are opening up something new for us in the way that we're thinking about things like gender or race um, or identity altogether. Um, I would think of culture as ideology, as a competition of certain um, ideas that have ideological underpinning under them. There's a lot of gatekeeping, a lot of opinions, there's a lot of rhetoric, activism. You're totally right. I think here too, cultural thinking, cultural studies thinking can really provide us with a valuable lens for adding nuance to those conversations, which is why I'm so passionate about this sort of work, right? It allows us to grapple with what is beneath the surface, what is invisible to the naked eye, what is lurking under all of these um, conversations and emerging discourses around it. And for me, the way that I approach those conversations as a cultural theorist is through the lens of power, right? Cultural studies helps us to understand that um, in really trying to contextualize whatever we are debating in the present um, in the history, you know, in, in how, we, how we got here, what cultural and social forces have formed this moment, have, have shaped this debate. Um, and this is the primary political imperative of cultural studies, asking who benefits from it, who, who, whose power is being reproduced in these encounters. And I think that is a very valuable 
starting point for me that I think, unfortunately, sometimes is missing from some of the mainstream conversations um, around these topics. I'm wondering your thoughts on this from a feminist lens. If you are a woman and you are a black woman, you could be receiving discrimination against your skin color. You could also be receiving discrimination because of your uh, gender. And if you are an older black woman, you could be receiving discrimination because you are a black woman who is of a certain age. You could be receiving multiple types of discrimination. Where are the nuances within the levels of inequality? I think that all of the things that you just mentioned are true. And I don't think that they cancel each other out, you know, which is something that we often see in the cultural discourse around these things. It, 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 it devolves itself into kind of oppression Olympics. And, you know, you asked about my feminist perspective, I suppose. And to me, the feminist approach to these questions would push against um, that kind of logic that frames our struggles as a competition, you know, that kind of basically is reduced to the question, okay, who is oppressed more or who is experiencing more uh, discriminatory factors in their lived experiences. A feminist approach to these issues to me would consider the nuance in the multiplicity of these lived experiences and truths. And that, you know, we we both can be judged, discriminated, oppressed based on our age, race, um, our cultural art origin, um, or our accent, right? And um, how we look, how we move through the world, our, you know, our body shape, et cetera. And so to me, in short, the feminist approach, the feminist framework, the feminist vision for that is to divorce ourselves for the need to compare, to compete, to make it about the, the question of like, well, if you are oppressed this way, but I am oppressed that way, is your oppression more important than mine? And it's not. Right. It is it is really about to me as someone who has been a student of black history for quite some time. It's actually about realizing that until the women or people who are the most oppressed, who bear and carry the struggle, the burden of multiple oppressions, right, who are oppressed for their racial identity, their gender, maybe their disability, um, their large body size, like when these people are free, then I'm free. And, you know, there's no way to think about my own liberation outside of theirs. What are your thoughts on the climate right now? I think we are in a very important moment. I mean, I would go as far as saying a very historically important moment. The uprising that we saw this past summer was certainly significant, but was not the first uprising. It was perhaps an uprising that garnered the most attention and the most mobilization. But in the years before that, we saw uprising in Ferguson, in Baltimore, in Charlotte. And so I think if we think about what is happening currently, not necessarily 
you know, in this timeline since last May, since the murder of George Floyd, but in thinking about this kind of mounting of cultural pressure over the last, you know, seven to 10 years um, as a result of hard work of Black Lives Matter co-founders, activists, organizers, as well as many multiracial cross-class grassroots coalitions on the ground that are working towards change, then I think we can more precisely understand this moment as a result of that hard work. What I think has happened since May is what inevitably always happens in a society that is highly commercialized, in which these ideas become not just about the realities of a political struggle and what needs to be done, what needs to be accomplished on a structural level, but they become signals for our own goodness. I think that is where we get it wrong right now. There is, thankfully, a renewed attention to issues of representation. However, that is profoundly not enough. Um, we, I think, need to be thinking more intentionally about things like power, as I said earlier, things around structural inequality that are the way in which oppressive systems are deeply ingrained into our institutions. And to put it in more simple terms, I want to think more about, you know, how much does a working class person earn at your corporation, you know, perhaps at the very bottom of, you know, the food chain, the person who perhaps produces the packaging for your brand. I want to think about that in addition to thinking about who is on the cover um, of your, you know, advertisement or your, your, the magazine cover or who, who is, um, say, um, I don't know, representing your brand on Instagram, right? It, to me, it's how are you treating the person who is, who is cleaning up after your fashion shoot? That is the question I don't think we address enough. And I think that is precisely because we have not yet arrived on the mainstream level to a place where we can think about race and class as always already intertwined. There's no alleviating racial inequality, for instance, or gender inequality without talking about capitalism. What, <laughs> this is such a complex conversation because it is so layered and nuanced and elusive. I would say we're at this point in society where culturally you can't escape the ignorance anymore or the the biases. I mean, the voice is so loud collectively that a person living under a rock would know that change is happening and we're in the midst of this sort of shift culturally, which is great. So, you know, th the inequality is so vast that the, the chasm to overcome the sort of injustice that has been rooted in the history of America, for example, it's a heavy lift. And right now we're in a culture of activism 
I come from an activist background. Um, for the last 10 years, I've been organizing as part of movements for racial and economic justice. And I think over time, especially recently, have had a hard time labeling myself an activist because of how we have diluted, in some sense, activism to the point of where it doesn't hold much meaning when we bring that word up or throw it around. So kind of in thinking about the questions that you have posed, I think part of what to me needs to happen is really thinking very intentionally about what activism is. I think activism is political work. Activism is politics and not, I don't mean politics as a kind of electoral politics or, you know, um, kind of um, mainstream level kind of politics, but I'm thinking about political struggle. And when we start thinking about activism more precisely as part of movement work, as part of a long tradition of struggle that has been waged by oppressed people, we have a point of reference. We are no longer thinking about activism in this vacuum. You know, we all should be doing activism. I'm an activist. I'm against inequality. Once we're able to narrow it down and say that activism that we should be carrying forward, in my opinion, is part of a long tradition of people who have done it before us, who have come before us, who have something to teach us, then we can go back to history. You know, I study the history of black social movements and, you know, we can go back and think about what it is that we are inheriting. What is the legacy that we are inheriting? What it is that our generation is charged with you know, to carry forward. I think that might lead us to more specific answers that go beyond just kind of general terms like inequality, social justice. What does that mean materially? What does it mean tangibly? Perhaps when we do that, we can develop our own and collective political visions. To me, for instance, that means believing that all people deserve healthcare, education, um, deserve access to employment and safe housing. Those are not really quote unquote sexy, um, trendy things to talk about, whether on you know Clubhouse, Instagram, or LinkedIn. But if we believe in black liberation, for instance, if we believe in the liberation of oppressed people, then our concern should be with what kind of life people who are the poorest, who are the most oppressed and marginalized are living, right? And, 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 and when we are able to nail it down to that level, to, to come to these conversations out of that consciousness, then I think something might shift and something might change. We are no longer thinking necessarily just on a superficial level of um, you know, identity politics, the way they have been perverted, to mean um, just you know who you see on the cover of a magazine. When we really start thinking structurally about oppression as being um, something that structures all levels of our living, economy, public housing, you know, healthcare, education, representation, um, employment, and wage equality, all of those things. Like this is a very long and um, and 
perhaps roundabout way of saying that I think we need to redefine what we mean by activism. And we have to have a very specific political vision that does not necessarily um, kind of just traffic or trade in these trendy buzzwords. Like what does the future actually look like? What are we working for or working towards? That's a really good point. You, you mentioned trendy buzzwords. What are those trendy buzzwords and what do they really well, mean to you? Let's bring it maybe to the, the corporate world or to the industry more specifically. We see and hear words like empathy being thrown around, you know, um, in brand design, UX design, diversity, equity, and inclusion work, it is very trendy to be empathetic. And it is very wonderful and great to be empathetic. But what does that actually mean? And can empathy be actually harmful um, when it is devoid of critical thinking? Can empathy morph itself into being patronizing, into, um, into relating to, to people um, from a certain level of privilege that one is unaware of? Um, I'm interested in asking those questions, right? And um, again, social justice, right? Or racial justice. Well, I think what needs to happen is that we need to have a conversation about ideology. Racial justice looks very different to a person who's a moderate versus to a person who is a liberal versus to someone like me who identifies as a radical leftist and an abolitionist, right? So things that to me entail racial justice, for example, in the United States is a definite conversation about reparations, about restructuring power, about not just giving um, marginalized people spaces on the magazine cover, but about thinking about wealth, thinking about wealth inequality, about who get who profits, right? And who gets left behind. And it's not just about hiring people. It's about thinking about how wealth is distributed in our society. So I could nail down those terms more precisely based on my own political commitments. Um, but I think they're going to be very different for other people. And to me, what is missing is a kind of conversation about what, what that actually entails. Because even when we think about the protests following George Floyd's murder and the language of abol abolition that reemerged in those conversations. And we look at polls, um, I think if I'm correct, um, published in New York Times, where most of Americans support the Black Lives Movement, at least the majority, like over 50 percent, I'm not necessarily remembering the precise numbers, support Black Lives Matter, but not necessarily support the abolition of police. Um, what does that? Where does it leave us? You know, where the movement's demand is actually defunding the police, and what happens when you know we say Black Lives Matter, but we are actually um, not necessarily talking about the same things that people on the ground in the movement are talking about? Um, and what does that do for diluting those concepts, those ideas, those visions? Yeah, I think it's interesting. If fashion is a reflection of culture and society. And we go back to fashion for a minute. Fashion has had a very difficult time discussing race, um, discussing and engaging in diversity, 
there's been a lot of controversies on the runways within the past five to seven years when you look at not just cultural appropriation and, or misrepresentation with you know, white models with cornrows and the backlash behind that or the sweater that is a reminder of blackface or the lack of diversity in general or representation in magazines, ad campaigns. In my mind, it seems like that's the easiest place to start. It it seems to be uh, a very big ask. What are your thoughts on that? My first thought that comes to mind is hire black studies consultants. That is where I come into this conversation you know, where we began in this conversation, thinking about the value of cultural knowledge, the power of cultural knowledge. You will not have a model in a sweater with a black face on it on a runway if there is a person in the room who is trained in black studies um, or in black cultural studies who knows the history of blackface, who is able to contextualize what is happening in front of them Um, where the creative process is going and be able to provide that nuance and that, you know, what I call a culturally intelligent perspective um, saying, you know, hey, you know, this, this, this reminds me of these things that we might want to look at to think about what kind of ideas is this reproducing, uh, whether intentionally or not, and what what kind of damage or harm might this cause? Again, intentionally or not, usually not intentionally. And so I think also another part of this is not it's not enough to bring into these rooms people who look a certain way. It is absolutely important to increase representation, to create diverse and inclusive teams of people, creative strategists, um, managers, whoever, uh, of various racial, ethnic, cultural backgrounds, um, etc. But in addition to that, we need to start thinking about cultural knowledge. Who can we invite into these rooms that can actually bring a rigorous, historically, socially, culturally grounded pers- perspective um, that can help us shift some of these narratives that can help us do something different. And I think that is precisely where we started in this conversation when I said that I believe that interdisciplinary humanities feels like black studies, ethnic studies, gender sexuality and feminist studies are areas of untapped opportunities for brands, for companies, for anyone who is really trying to do better in their business. This conversation is sort of embodying um, what I think should be happening. And it's kind of um, just briefly to your point about pointing fingers or canceling each other or, you know, the way in which um, we don't always take the time to have these conversations and to disagree or to, you know, bring in certain examples that challenge us and challenge our thinking. Um, And so I'm very thankful to be able to be in conversation with you about that. Thank you for listening to the Unbiased Label Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, then please connect with us on social media, tell a friend, and leave a review. Please tune in next time for more conversation on fashion and culture from a critical global perspective at the intersection of industry and academia. 
Until next time, stay well.